Tonight we're going to talk about the means of gospel-centered marriage and parenting and singleness. And then what we're going to do next week is we'll jump specifically into um, the nitty-gritty of marriage. That will include singleness as we talk about that um, and will we'll be useful to you singles as well. But it's, it's really what is marriage, what's the nature of marriage, how does that play out, um, specifically roles, all that kind of stuff. That'll go on for five weeks. And then we'll switch into the parenting side, which will go on for the next five weeks. So you understand that's how it breaks down. Um, with that said, though, let me pray, and we'll jump in um, to this study tonight. Father, I am thankful for you, uh, for your kindness, for the opportunity to uh, just to know you and to know your son, to be saved, to have t- just the chance to get together, to get into your word together, to talk about um, singleness and marriage and parenting and what that means. I pray you'd give us clarity tonight as we understand and attempt to understand what the means of that is, um, that you would work powerfully in all of us, that we um, would desire to bring the gospel to bear in our lives, in every area of our lives, particularly in our most important and closest relationships. And pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Now, let me start off with this. We're a people who are constantly looking for wisdom, constantly looking for wisdom that is solid enough, that is tangible enough that we can make it into very specific laws and principles. Constantly looking for it. We, um, we know that, that knowing the Lord and walking with him in wisdom is difficult. So wouldn't it just be easier to make some laws we can follow, to come up with a, sense of, a, a set of principles that we can follow? And so we create actual whole book industries and ministries around so-called biblical principles for things, especially biblical principles for singleness and marriage and parenting. Is that right? You guys see lots of books on these issues. But what do we do when the Bible provides us with surprisingly less principles for this than we hope for? Surprisingly less. Even more scary, what do we do when we find um, the wisdom of the Bible does not provide um, or, excuse me, I should say this, doesn't work 100% of the time. See a proverb and say, why doesn't, why doesn't that proverb work? Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is older, he will not depart from it. Okay, we did that, so how come he departed from it? What do we do when we find out that it's really impossible to keep 100% of the commands and 100% of the proverbial wisdom? Well, what we normally do is we move on to the next better program to see if it works, right? That's what we normally do. We want to find the best principles to be holy in our singleness and to be holy in our marriages, to be holy in parenting. And part of the problem is that we're often asking the Bible to address issues in a different manner than God seems interested in addressing them. But the bigger problem that underlies this is that we don't understand the story of the Bibles about Jesus. And because we don't understand the story of the Bibles about Jesus, um, that he is our wisdom and righteousness and sanctification, because we don't understand that, that he's the fulfillment of the law, and he is the one to whom all the Old Testament bears witness, because we don't get that, when we lose sight of Jesus' story as central to all the laws and all the wisdom that we find in Scripture, we begin misusing the text. We, we begin misusing the text by forgetting its purpose. We begin abusing the text by making it say things it doesn't. And we begin being burdened by the text because we see it as a story of our hopelessness to be all that it calls us to be, and not as the story of how Jesus is everything for us. So what I want to do is dive into specific application to our topics at hand with regard to the means. 
So, so here's, here's a question. What does the Bible say about dating? Single people. What does the Bible say about dating? Nothing. Not one thing. There is not one command with regard to dating in Scripture. All it says is this. If you're single and filled with passion, find a spouse. Right? Or if you can go without that passion, then serve the Lord and don't find a spouse. That's it. Yet whole books are written on biblical dating principles, aren't they? Whole books. There are shelves filled with books on biblical dating principles. One guy came up with 16 biblical strategies for dating. This isn't me written by me. It was actually forwarded to me by Kevin Altenhoffel. I thought it was fantastic. So if we look at the examples that Scripture gives us with regard to dating, here are 16 biblical strategies for dating. You ready? Here's, here's one. First one comes from Deuteronomy 21, verses 11 through 13. Find an attractive prisoner of war, bring her home, shave her head, trim her nails, and give her new clothes. Then she's yours. That's what it says. Here, here's a second one. Lay hold of a virgin, not betrothed to another man, and know her. But afterwards, pay her father a sum of money, then she's yours. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 28 and 29. Or how about Hosea? God commanded Hosea to find a prostitute and marry her. Or here's the fourth one. Moses, find a man with seven daughters and oppress him by watering his flock. (laughs) There you go, right? Or how about Boaz, purchase a piece of property and get a woman as part of the deal, right? Or go to a party and hide. It's like the Benjamites. Go to a party and hide. When the women come out to dance, grab one and carry her off to be your wife. Um, that's in Judges 21. Incidentally, how about Adam in Genesis 2? Just, just have God create a wife for you out of your rib while you sleep. Or, or Jacob, agree to work seven years in exchange for a woman's hand in marriage. The, the problem with this is you might get tricked into marrying the wrong woman. So then what you need to do is work another seven years for the woman you really wanted to marry in the first place. 14 years of toil for a wife. Or how about David in 1 Samuel 18? Cut 200 foreskins off your future father-in-law's enemies and get his daughter for your wife. That's what he did. Cain, even if no one's out there, just wander around a bit. You'll definitely find somebody, right? In the book of Esther, you can become the emperor of a huge nation and hold a beauty contest. That's one way to do it. Um, Judges, this is specifically Samson. When you see someone you like, go home and tell your parents, I have seen a woman, now get her for me. If your parents question your decision, simply say, get her for me, she's the one for me. Or David with another wife, <laughs> kill any husband and take his wife, right? Okay. Or how about um, Onan and Boaz, incidentally, wait for your brother to die, take his widow. Or how about Solomon, don't be so picky, make up quality with quantity. Or then there's the Apostle Paul, right? A wife? Why do I need one of those? Okay. Further, not only is there nothing about dating in the Bible that you would want to follow, right? There's only two commands regarding parenting in the entire New Testament. See that? And they're basically repetitive in Colossians and Ephesians. There are several Proverbs and some Old Testament commands, but only two commands in the New Testament regarding parenting. For a focus on the family country, that's sort of shocking, isn't it? The New Testament also only has eight to ten passages on marriage. Though some are repeats, and that's why I say 8 to 10, some are repeats about the nature of marriage and when or when when divorce is not allowed. 
Only three passages actually spend much time giving commands about how to treat one another in marriage. And even those are fairly repetitive. Yet even with so few commands and with such simple requirements, we seem to struggle over and over again, don't we? Why? Why do we struggle? If there's that, not that many commands after all, not that many requirements, why do we struggle so much with it? Because law is not able to motivate us, and law is not able to empower us. It can only convict and condemn. We can try to flip these principles a hundred different ways through multiple different book publishers and multiple different seminars, but the fact is we won't be able to keep them. Well, but doesn't the law at least provide us with good direction? Okay, it doesn't motivate, it doesn't empower, but doesn't it at least provide us with good direction? Yes, but it's a direction that you will, it's a direction that you cannot travel apart from the gospel. So why is that? It's because the law is not the engine that drives the train of holy and wise living. You hear that? The law is not the engine that drives the train of holy and wise living. The law is like tracks the train is on. The tracks don't make the train go, do they? Further, if you have a bunch of train cars and you have no engine, and I tell you that these tracks will lead you to your destination thousands of miles away, the tracks will just become one long discouragement, won't they? The gospel is what motivates and empowers us. It is the engine of the train. And the gospel is the relational context in which we live all of life in pursuit of holiness. And the three areas I mentioned last time are found, you know, that are found in the gospel, um, the, the idea of a new identity in Christ, we have a new motive because of the gospel, and we have a new ability. What do I mean by those three? Because those are really what we're pushing after this whole series. A new identity in Christ means that the gospel reminds us that Jesus is our identity and not our own performance as a spouse or a parent or even a single person. Jesus is our identity. When I stand before God, I stand before God as holy, as holy as the second member of the Trinity. Think about that for a little bit. When Paul addresses all the churches that he addresses in every letter, how does he start out? To the saints in such and such a place. What's interesting about that is that word in the Greek is hagios, and if you want to translate that, it's an adjective. It means the holy ones. How many of you, when you are asked, who are you, you say, well, I'm a holy one. Really? Yeah, I'm as holy as the second person of the Trinity. How about that? Huh? Does anybody ever answer that way? That's true of you in Christ. It's a new identity. I'm not the train wreck mom who thankfully will be saved in the end. Uh, clearly, I'm not a mom, but you understand the point, right? Or the train wreck, I'm, I'm not that husband who clearly will just be saved in the end, thank God. I'm holy in Christ. The new motivation the gospel provides. The gospel changes our understanding of marriage and parenting and thus provides the proper motivation for us to pursue marriage and parenting out of thanksgiving for what God did and is doing and not out of obligation to win his approval. That's the new motivation. See, I don't do this to get God to love me. I do this because he loves me. I don't do this so I can become his child. I do this because I am his child. It's a new ability as well. The gospel empowers us to be God-glorifying spouses and parents by imparting to us the Holy Spirit and God's word through which real changes take place. Not just through our right application of the law. See, this is what understand. Real change does not take place through your right application of the law. Real change takes place through the Holy Spirit 
being imparted to you through the gospel that gives you new life and that changes you and makes you want to keep the law and then you rightly appropriate the law because of God's spirit in you. So he changes you through the gospel. You don't do, notice, you don't do any of that. You just receive it. So tonight what I want to do is look at three areas, those three areas addressed by the gospel in the context really of the means of living it out. And so let me give you an overall statement that summarizes this, okay? Uh, it's the means of gospel centrality in singleness, marriage, and parenting. And, and it's a long sentence, but I want you to hear this because it's important. The means of gospel-centered marriage and parenting and singleness, the means of it, it's how you accomplish it, is the community created by the gospel. That's the church, which is created by the gospel. That's part of the means, okay? Community created by the gospel, trusting wholly together in the gospel as they are guided together in the wisdom of God's holy, righteous, and good law as lived out in the example of the gospel, Jesus. So I want to look at Ephesians 5.22 and sort of set the table for this. Let's look there with me. You turn to Ephesians 5 and ask you where, I want to look at sort of where these commands start with regard to marriage and parenting. There aren't any regard to singleness and dating other than get married or don't, so I'm not going to deal with that. Um, but I want, I want you to follow these discussions because this has to do with holiness in general. Marriage and parenting are just contexts for living holy. This has to do with it in general. But look at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So he gives this command. To wives, submit to your own husbands. And then look at verse 25. Now he addresses husbands. Husband, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then down on chapter 6, he addresses children. Verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then down in verse 4 of chapter 6, he, do, he addresses fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And then in chapter 5, he addresses slaves, which would be like contemporary employees, especially if you work at a place you're not happy with. But anyway, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would serve Christ. And then in verse 9 of chapter 6, he addresses masters. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. In other words, what Paul does is in this section from 522 through six, chapter 6, verse 9, is he addresses multiple relationships we're in. We're in the husband-wife relationship. We're in the father-child relationship we're in, or parent-child relationship. And, and we're in the employer-employee relationship. And he addresses all of these relationships, and he says, I want you to live them out in light of Jesus. I want you to do that. So here are the commands. You need to live them out this way. And where do those commands come contextually? In other words, what's the context for the giving of those relationships? Look up to verse 21 of chapter 5. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I think one of the things we do with our English is we sort of confuse this a bit because when it says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, the actual probably proper translation is submitting one to another out of reverence for Christ. And so it's submitting one to another, and then what happens? Wives submitting to husbands, children submitting to parents, slaves submitting to masters. You guys follow that? He's giving you examples of what submitting one to another looks like, and he's breaking that down. And that's the context. But what does submit to one another follow? In other words, what does verse 21 follow? 
Again, look up at verse 19 through 20. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, submitting to one another follows worship and joy in God. So there's worship and joy in God, and out of that worship and joy in God, you then submit to one another, and you act this way in your relationships. Husbands with wives, wives with husbands, children with parents, parents with children, masters with slaves, slaves with masters. You can follow that? So you submit to one another, which flows out of worship and joy in the Lord. But where does the worship and joy derive from? Again, go up. We're working backwards intentionally. I want you to see how this works. Verse 18 Actually, go to verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You ready for the will of the Lord? Here it comes. You want the will of the Lord for your life? Here it is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And what does that look like? Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What's interesting is, is this word, be filled with the Spirit, don't be drunk with wine. I think sometimes we think that the wine or the Spirit are the content of the filling, so when he says, don't be drunk with wine, that means that don't, don't be filled up with wine and, and don't be drunk with the Spirit. That means don't be filled up like, like they're the substance or the content of the filling, but they're not, they're the agent of the filling. You hear that? They're the agent. What, what does, is, when he says don't be drunk with wine, really it probably is better translated, that preposition is probably translated, don't be drunk by wine. Why, why would you say that? When somebody's drunk, my concern isn't that they have too much wine in their body. My concern is that the wine is the agency that has caused them to be drunk. You guys follow me on that? It's caused drunkenness in them. It's not the amount of liquid in their body that Paul's concerned with. It's the effect of the liquid upon them. Does that, does that make sense? And the same thing is happening here with, with regard to being filled with or by the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who is the agent who does the filling. You already are dwelt by the Spirit. So when he says, be filled with the Spirit, his command isn't, get re-indwelt by the Spirit. His command is, be filled by the Spirit. And what does that mean? He goes on and explains what it means, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what filling with the Spirit means, it means God is filling us with remembrance of and joy in the word of the gospel. And the Spirit is the agent who's doing that filling. When the Holy Spirit fills us, we are filled with the knowledge of God's love for us in Christ. And that causes us to worship and rejoice and submit to one another and relate to one another appropriately. Does that make sense? So look back at, at Ephesians 118 to see how, how, I, how I mean that with the filling of the Spirit. At, at Ephesians 118, well, I'll, I'll actually start back at the, the whole prayer. If you look at verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I want you to know him. Now look what he says. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope 
to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saint, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come." In other words, I'm praying that the Lord Jesus and God the Father would give you a spirit of revelation and wisdom so that you would know these things. So you'd be brought to mind the gospel. Look at chapter 3 now of Ephesians and verse 16 through 19. Again, this prayer, I'll start with 14. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father. Who is going to answer these prayers of Paul's and bring this to bear and apply it to people? The Holy Spirit is. He's going to bring the one applying it. He says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And what happens when you're strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being? So that, here's the purpose of that, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Isn't that interesting? When the Holy Spirit fills us, when we're filled by the Holy Spirit, we are filled with knowledge of God's love for us in Christ. It isn't some funky mystical experience where you have super spiritual mojo all of a sudden, right? It's when God strengthens us in the inner man by filling us with the, the experience and the knowledge of his love for us in Christ. You guys ever had that happen to you? You know what that's like. What happens when that happens to you? You burst forth doing what? Singing hymns and songs and spiritual songs, addressing one another this way, don't you? And it changes the way you relate to other people. Man, the Lord loves me this way, so I want to submit one to another. Others, I'm going to relate rightly to them because I've been reminded of the gospel because the Holy Spirit's poured out the love of God into my heart. That's the motivator. That's what John, or Jesus says of, of the Holy Spirit in John, chapter 14 and 16, doesn't he? When the Holy Spirit comes, what's he going to do? He's going to lead you in all truth. About what? He's going to remind you of all things concerning me. That's what he's going to do. He's going to come, and he's going to pour out the knowledge of me and the love of God, and it's going to change you, and it's going to motivate you. The Holy Spirit giving you power or strength is not about a higher life. He gives you the strength to see and know God's love in Christ in the midst of you feeling accused and unworthy. When you're feeling rejected by the Lord, his Spirit reminds you of your sonship. He gives you an inner peace of knowing you are his, and no one can snatch you from him, even when you're feeling distant. He reminds you of the gospel and causes you to want to live in holy thankfulness for it. He reminds you of your identity in Christ and your status of a son and fills your heart with the love of God and empowers you to imitate him. You all know this because what happened to so many people when they've come and heard the gospel, I've heard so many people say, if you preach the gospel that Paul preached, free grace of God in Christ. Won't that lead to people wanting to sin more? See, Paul expects that. He's like, no, not at all. Not at all, because when they understand the gospel, they've been united to Christ. The Spirit of God is in them. They've died and raised to new life, and they have a new holy zeal they've never had before. 
That's the work of the Spirit in them. That's what comes through the Spirit in the New Covenant promise in Ezekiel 36. You guys read the Old Testament much? Turn to Ezekiel if you're familiar with where that is. Look at that. I flipped my Bible and went right to it. I didn't have it marked. It's about the middle of your Bible. It's a little, it's, a little, it's probably not quite two-thirds through your Bible. It's a, he's a major prophet. Ezekiel chapter 36, there is a promise given of the new covenant. And many of you are familiar with this because you've heard it, but I don't think we've spent a lot of time on it. I'll start actually in verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is the Lord now speaking, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. Isn't that interesting? When the spirit comes in the new covenant, in the promise that Jesus brings, the spirit comes into us, changes our hearts, and causes us to want to keep his law. He does that work. He not only gives us a new identity, he gives us a new ability, and he gives us a new motive. He does all of it. So look at how Paul continually ties the commands to the gospel. Go, go back to Ephesians and look at 4.1 and see his ties real quickly, and I need to move quick. But look at his ties. Ver, chapter 4, verse 1 of Ephesians. I, therefore, he's summing up the first three chapters. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of, of the calling, the calling there is the gospel, to which you've been called. Walk in a manner worthy of that. You've been called into the kingdom of Christ into, by the gospel, so walk in a manner worthy of that, tied to the gospel. Look down at verse 17 through 20, just to keep carrying it on. I can show you more in that first section, but I won't. Verse 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of the heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Hear the connection to the gospel from his commands? Don't live that way because that's not how you learn Christ. Verse 32 of chapter 4. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Here's a command connected to the gospel. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. There's a connection to the gospel. You're beloved children by the grace of God in Christ. So be imitators. Next verse. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Verse 22 of chapter 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body as himself its savior. You see the connection with the gospel to the command? Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church 
and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of the water with the word. See the connection between the command and the gospel again? Verse, or chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. The Lord there is Jesus. That's how Paul always uses the phrase, the Lord. He's talking about Jesus. Again, a reference to in the Lord, in Jesus. Chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, Jesus. Chapter 6, verse 5. Slaves, obey earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. The, co- the connection between the law and the gospel comes over and over and over again. Because Paul does not want the church to forget what he said in the first three chapters. All these commands are grounded in the gospel of Ephesians 1 through 3. The point of Ephesians 4, 1 and all that follows is that because you're called into this gospel laid out in the first three chapters of Ephesians, because you're called into that, you need to live like it now. In other words, the imperatives, that's the commands, the imperatives are grounded in the indicatives. Those are the statements of reality. First three chapters, this is true of you, 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 this is true. Three chapters of this is all who you are now. And then three more chapters. So live this way, live this way, live this way, live this way. Again and again, repeating, you are this person in Christ, now live like it. You don't act like it so that it will be true of you. He doesn't put... Ephesians chapter 4 through 6 at the beginning, saying, do this, do this, do this, do this, and then this will be true of you. He says, Jesus did this, Jesus did this, Jesus did this, Jesus did this, this is true of you, this is true of you, this is true of you. Now act like it. You act like it because it's true of you, not so that it will be true of you. My son doesn't act like my son because he wants to become my son. My son acts like my son because he is my son. And the commands and wisdom of Scripture are always meant to be lived in the context of this gospel story of Jesus. If you read Ephesians 4 through 6, detached from the gospel, it will crush you. Hear that? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her. Okay, Jesus is my example. I will love him as Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her. And I will forget that Jesus gave himself up for me too. And I will try to follow the example of Jesus. And I will be crushed in the inability to give myself up on a daily basis for my wife. Wives, submit to your husbands. That's an unconditional thing, by the way. The only, only attachment there is obviously don't follow them into sin. Respect your husbands, also unconditional. He doesn't have to earn it. You just have to give it. Well, I can't do that. You know what that guy's like? You're right, you can't. Good thing Jesus always kept God's commands. And now you're counted as one who has kept God's commands. Think about that. You are counted as someone who kept every one of these commands. That's your status. That's your position. That's your identity. You're a law keeper in Christ. People say, well, you know, I had this discussion actually this afternoon. I say, well, it's true, I'm holy in Christ. And they want to use in Christ as sort of a deflection away from the reality of their own holiness in Christ. So they want to minimize the holiness that they now have in Christ by saying it's in Christ. You guys follow me on that? Because I just want to, I'm really screwed up. You don't even know me, but in Christ I'm holy. Okay, okay, okay. Right? Rather than understanding that in Christ is actually the ground of their confidence that it's true that they're holy. So they flipped it. They've made in Christ sort of the qualification that sort of diminishes the truth of the statement that they're holy, rather than in Christ as the qualification that grounds the truth that they're holy. 
You're as holy as Jesus was because of what Jesus did. It's hard to get a hold of that, isn't it? The commands and wisdom of Scripture are always meant to be lived, though, in that gospel story, in that context. And I don't want you to miss this because you're, meant to, you're not meant to live the Christian life on your own. Every one of these texts is a community text. You know that? Notice that? Every one of them is a community text. There aren't any um, New Testament texts that are written to you know, just individuals detached from the church. That, well, what about the ones written to Timothy and Titus? They were written to Timothy and Titus in the context of how they live out life in the church. Even the letter to uh, Philemon is written about relationships in the church because of the gospel. Paul makes clear that the means of living the gospel-centered life is found in teaching and singing and praying and encouraging and admonishing and counseling one another with the word of the gospel. In other words, the means of holiness and gospel-centered singleness and marriage and parenting is always remembering, remembering who we are in Christ as we strive together to live that way and do so by pointing one another to the word. So, so how do we live this out? Well, we, we do three things that are, are actually going to be shockingly simple. One, we constantly remember the gospel. Constantly remember the gospel by receiving the word together. Together. Do you notice I said that? The church actually used to gather every day for the reading of the word. Even when you're reading it on your own at home, pay attention to all the we's. Pay attention to the plural you's. I know we don't have a plural you in English. We're like defunct, right? Because we don't have a singular and plural you. So we read it and we think you is always singular. Generally, it's plural. Most of the time, he's addressing the church, not a particular individual. We used to have a you in, in a singular and plural, right? When we had thee and thou. We tossed that away, though. I think it was too confusing for us. So we just went down to the one and combined it. That's right. They, have, <laughs> they do. Y'all, right? <laughs> you and y'all. Maybe we should do that to make it easier. Just translate everything in the Bible. Y'all do this and y'all do that. Okay. We're supposed to be receiving the word together, though. Second, we constantly remind one another the gospel. We constantly remind one another the gospel by sharing the word with one another. Third, we, we constantly resolve to help one another live worthy of the gospel as we meditate together on the word. Sounds very repetitive, doesn't it? It is. It's just a little twist on the same thing. Basically, we tell each other the gospel over and over and over again every day of our lives. And you need the community of faith to do this because you can't be biblically wise by yourself. You need the community pointing you to Jesus on every occasion. It's as simple as encouraging one another to be who we are by pointing one another, one another to who we are in Christ and what it looks like to be that on a day-to-day basis as described in Scripture. But let me give you this caution. It's simple. It's simple, but it's not easy, right? That's the thing. I think we make it complicated because we figure since it's so hard, it must be complicated. It's like dieting and exercise. You want to lose weight? Just diet and exercise. It's not complex. It's simple. It just is hard and miserable, right? (laughs) You guys... You guys understand what I'm saying? It's the same thing with walking with the Lord. It's not easy, but it's simple. It's not easy really for two reasons. One, it's not easy because it requires we depend on one another. requires we depend on one another. We can't do it on our own. God doesn't, you know, I don't know if people realize this. God doesn't command you to gather with the church as a kind of hoop that you have to jump through. He he doesn't like, let me give them one that they're not going to like. Get together with the church every week. What? I don't want to do that. 
get together them multiple times a week even. Oh, man. Let's see if they do it. I mean, that's not what he's doing. He commands you to gather the church because we need one another. Jesus kindly saved us into the body of Christ, and we need one another. That's the whole point of Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. We can't grow into full maturity in the body of Christ if we're not speaking the truth in love, which is the gospel, to one another. But further, that's the point of Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. You've got to be constantly reminding each other. It's the point of Hebrews 10, 23 and 25 when he says, listen, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing, but instead you're supposed to be stirring one another up to love and good deeds. Why? Because I need you to stir me up to love and good deeds. Because a lot of times I don't want to do any love and good deeds. I don't want to love my wife today in the way that she wants me to love her, right? So somebody better remind me. You all know that Teresa and I went through some rough time, or a lot of you do, um, when she was sick. And, and I remember being quite discouraged at some points and thinking, just forget it all. I just want to chuck it all. And I remember Jason came over and Randy Lovegreen came over. Jason Faber and Randy Lovegreen came over because I told him I was just ready to be done. Chuck it. I'm done with life. I'm done with everything. Ministry, marriage, family. I just can't take it any longer. And they came over and um, I was just having a pity party. And they said nothing to me. They just sat there. And after a few hours, I said, you guys are right. (laughs) 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 This needs to change. I know. They're like, we didn't say anything to you. But you know what? I knew what they stood for. And their presence reminded me of what I was supposed to believe. I needed them there. Because if they would have been absent, and I would have been left to my own devices, and no one would have been reminding me, I don't know what I might have done at that point. I'm not incredibly confident in me in that regard. I need you. You need me. That's life. We need each other. You won't live a gospel-centered, God-honoring marriage on your own. You won't be gospel-centered, God-honoring parents on your own. You need the community of faith speaking the gospel to one another to do this. The second reason it's not easy, it's not easy because we quickly forget the story of the Bible. And we do this by beginning to assume the gospel. And when we do that, we be quickly lose the gospel. That's D.A. Carson, incidentally, not me. When we assume the gospel, we eventually and very quickly really lose the gospel. People come to me constantly and say, I feel like I became a believer at Sovereign Grace. Like, really, why is that? I knew I was a believer before, but I, I felt like I almost didn't really know the gospel and didn't really have the ki- this kind of love for the gospel. And some people then follow that up with this statement. I think a lot of churches are just not that committed to the gospel. And you might be partly right. I'm guessing, though, that if you ask the leaders of those churches if they agree with the gospel that you believe in, they would say, of course we do. Well, if so, how come they hardly ever talk about it? It isn't because they have denied it. It's because they've assumed it. See, our people are saved. They know the gospel. Now they need to learn the good life principles The problem is is that they think the gospel is the front door of the Christian life and not the whole of the Christian life. And so once you're through the front door, the gospel now gets assumed. Once the gospel gets assumed, it gets lost. But by the grace of God go I. See, the gospel is the precious treasure of the church, and Satan would love for us to assume it so that it is lost to us and to the next generation. Because see, if we assume it, the next generation doesn't ever hear it, do they? We must constantly battle this together. For the remembering and meditating on and speaking the gospel to one another is the means of gospel-centered living. 
So you have to understand, it is the means. Remembering and meditating on and speaking the gospel to one another is the means of gospel-centered living. Um, let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for you and for the gospel, for the story of Jesus. I pray that we would not lose sight of it, that we would never assume it, that we would know that we need one another to speak it into one another's lives over and over and over again. We thank you for the fact that there is a story that is true, that is real, and that our souls can be conformed to it, that they can join it. And that story is the story of your son, Jesus. We pray that, that you would be honored in our lives, that we would remember and meditate on and remind one another of the gospel constantly. For the sake of your son, amen. So I have a question, and you can feel free to text me some if you want to. Also, Jay, you can come up. Um, these first two were a little more foundational, so they took a little longer, thus leaving us a little less time. But um, the feel free to text some questions. How do you help? Here's the first one. How do you help a fellow Christian look to the Bible when their spouse abuses them physically, emotionally, and is an adulterer who claims to be a Christian? Well, first you call the elders, and we'll go over there and take care of him. No. The <laughs> you probably shouldn't call us when we're all meeting together, because that may happen. But, um, yeah, wow. I mean, the, um, I, I would tell you that if, if a woman is being, or a spouse, I guess, does it say that, yeah, the husband, right? Um, it just says the spouse. So I don't know if this is a man or a woman who's being abused. But I, I'm assuming it's a woman. If, if, a, if, a, if a woman is being abused physically and emotionally and her husband's committing adultery, um, she, she, let, let me just say this, because she's being abused physically and emotionally, she needs to get to a safe place. I'm just going to state that right off. I'm not saying she needs to divorce him. I'm saying she needs to get away from him so she doesn't get beat up by him, um, first and foremost. So if you have this friend, um, you should counsel her, if she already is not, to um, get away. Get away, get in a safe place, and if she wants to begin a counseling process and a restoration process because he's repentant, great. That's great. You should even encourage the possibility of that. However, because of Matthew 19, which says that if a man is committing adultery, she um, or a woman's committing adultery, the other person's free to leave that relationship, she does have the right to choose to divorce. Now, I'm going to say that that's not Jesus' encouragement to her. That's the exception clause. You guys follow the difference there? You may. I'm not encouraging you to, right? Um, and so uh, Jesus is always about reconciliation, always. And so I, what I would tell them is first get, safe, get to safety. That's always the first thing. And then the second thing is, is that, that God has your good in mind. And let me pray with you. And likely this person just needs your presence, frankly. Your presence and your prayer, they probably don't, aren't, in, aren't right immediately ready to hear a lot from you. Pray for them. Be present. When they ask, man, the Lord is after your good. He is. It's hard to see. I, I imagine that it seems impossible to see. Um, you can take her to like Psalm 77, where the psalmist wonders, God, have you forgotten to be gracious to me? Right? And then he doesn't recount God's works to him. He counts, recounts God's works in history. He says, I've seen what you've done in history, and, and so 
I believe you'll continue to be good to me. Um, and I think, I think you, need, you, you bring them there and, and then you walk them through the process, whatever that looks like. Um, but frankly, if that's, re- if that's happening to somebody here, um, I, I, that's one that you, you ought to come and talk to us about, about that right away so we can walk you through it more specifically. But I'm, I'm gonna, I, I can't emphasize enough that the first, the first issue on the table there is safety. First issue on the table. Um, these, these men who are abusive have killed women, right? So the first issue is safety. Second issue, then, is, is the issue of how we walk through that. And I, so, okay. When you say in Christ, are you speaking literally like a mystical union? You want to take that, Jay, or you want me to take it? <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to take Since it. you're the one that did the talking, why don't uh, you take that? You know, Keaton, you can read... You can read John Murray's book, Redemption, Accomplished, and Applied, and that'll help you with it. But um, We're reading there, together the gospel mystery of sanctification, yeah, yeah. which deals with this, so I'm kind of surprised that you asked the question. Yeah, Keaton's not paying any attention. <laughs> He's too, too busy being infatuated with Lindsay. The, and we encourage <laughs> Yeah, that. we do. It's his new we wife, so he should that. be very infatuated. Yeah, um, y- yes, I, I'm speaking of both. Um, it's, it's difficult, indwelling language is difficult, because um, Christ indwells us, and we're united in him, and, and I'm not exactly sure how to work all of that out, but it's a real, true indwelling, uh, him and us. What's amazing, actually, in John is that he says that the Father and the Son come to indwell us, and incidentally, later, the Holy Spirit, which means the entire Trinity indwells you. Wrap your mind around that sometime. It's an amazing thought, and that you're in him which means that you're not only counted his son, but you're really holy. In him, yes, but really holy. Because that union is a real union. It's mystical as well, and so you don't feel it, right? You don't, like, feel your union with Christ, like a, you know, Siamese twin or something. Yeah, anyway, so you get it. All right, I I could do a whole series of lectures on union with Christ, (laughs) Keaton, and you know that, right? So I'll, I'll give you what I can there. Nobody else? All right. Here's what I'm going to do then. I'm going to pray. And um, what's going to happen, I, and I told Jason this, the reason I'm going to bring John Stevens up when we get into the, um, with us, when we get into some of the stuff starting next week, is we're going to get into more specifics. And that's when I think a lot more specific questions are going to start coming. And so, um, so I, I just ask you guys to, um, to come, come with it. I think it's going to be incredibly beneficial to you because you're going to go, okay, this is great. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Now what do I do? Right? Um, you remember the gospel. Well, what do I do? Remember the gospel. But, but what do I do? Remember the gospel. How does that look? Okay, now we can talk. What does that look like? See, that's what we're going to talk about, really. I'm not going to talk about anything else you do, but what that looks like um, and how it plays out. Um, okay. Okay, let's, let's pray then, and I'll send you guys off. Father, thank you. Um, thank you for your son and the story of what it means to be in him. And, and what he's done for us and, and just your kindness to us in him. We pray that, that as we go through this series and we begin to ask the question, what, what does it look like to remember the gospel and to live in light of this new identity and new ability and new motivation that we have in your son? Um, I pray that you'd give us all clarity. You'd help um, 
bring out questions that we have, struggles that we might have, um, that we would be able to, to answer those in a helpful manner, that your son would be honored. Pray that you'd give us strong marriages and strong families in our church. I pray, Father, again and again, that, that we would not join the statistics of, of so-called Christians that have lots of divorce, but that we would see that rarely, if ever, in this church. Pray, Father, that you would give, us, give our children incredibly boring testimonies. They would walk with Jesus their whole lives and it wouldn't be exciting to the world, but, but man, there's no better testimony than, than our children walking with the Lord all the days of their lives. So I pray that you'd bring that about in the children of this church. I pray for our singles, Father, that you would help them to not make an idol of relationships or marriage, um, but that they would trust you and they would wait patiently on you um, Father, that they would understand the freedom really they have in, in looking for a spouse if that's um, the way that you've, you've built them to, to get married and that they would, they would be able to find one, um, one that loves your son and walks with you and, and that they would be an encouragement to one another. In Jesus' name, amen.